there, I'm Andrea Koppel, and it's time for coffee, the podcast where you get to hear firsthand what the jobs and careers that interest you the most are really like. Hey there, Java junkies. Welcome back to another episode of T4C. I am so excited that you're along for the ride. My next guest is going to help you if you're interested in building a meaningful career in the U.S. Armed Forces, then this is the episode for you because she is a retired four-star admiral and not just any four-star admiral. She became the first African-American woman to command a ship in the Navy and the first African-American woman to reach the rank of a three-star and then a four-star in the armed forces. But before I introduce you to recently retired Admiral Michelle Howard, I want to make sure you've signed up for the Java Junkies Journal. That's T4C's weekly newsletter that gives you a one-stop shop place to get the inside scoop on that week's guests and episodes. And it is so easy to do. You just head over to the Time for Coffee website at time, the number four, coffee.org, and the sign-up box is right there. Now, my friends, please grab your mug and take a chug of your favorite caffeinated beverage because it's time for another caffeinated career conversation. And my distinguished guest is retired Admiral Michelle Howard, who served 35 years in the U.S. Navy before retiring in December 2017. Admiral Howard led sailors and Marines many times during her career as the commander of a ship, an expeditionary strike force, a task force, and a naval theater. Her last command was from 2016 to 2017 as the U.S. commander of U.S. Naval Forces Europe and Africa. She simultaneously led NATO's Allied Joint Force Command Naples with oversight of missions from the Western Balkans to Iraq. Admiral Howard is also a Desert Storm and Operation Iraqi Freedom veteran. In 1999, Admiral Howard became the first African-American woman to command a ship in the U.S. Navy. Then in 2014, she became the first woman to become a four-star admiral in the U.S. Navy and the first woman to be appointed to the position of vice chief of naval operation. And for those of you not familiar with that kind of lingo, that means she was the number two in a military service. She's also the first African-American woman to reach the rank of three-star and then four-stars in the armed forces and is currently the visiting Shapiro professor at the Elliott School of International Affairs at George Washington University. And I also want to give a shout out to the organization that actually introduced me to Admiral Howard, and that is the Henry L. Stimson Center, which is a nonpartisan policy research center working to solve the world's greatest threats to security and prosperity, where Admiral Howard and I both serve on the board of directors. Admiral Howard, Michelle, welcome to Time for Coffee. Are you still caffeinated out there in Colorado and ready to go? That's right. I got my cup of joe. Awesome. And you were telling me a really cool story about where that expression came from. Yes. So the Navy, like most navies, when it was born and grew up, alcohol was allowed. There used to, you know, the 1700s and 1800s rum rations. Around the time of World War One, the Secretary of the Navy, Josephus Daniels, made the ships go dry. He got rid of alcohol. And so the chiefs or the sailors, they'd go 
get coffee because that's one of the few beverages they could have at that point. And after Josephus Daniels, not very respectfully, but they started to call coffee cups of joe because they weren't allowed to have their rum anymore. I can only imagine what some of those operations were like. Well, having alcohol or having rum rations, your grog rations were almost like part of your pay. You got so much money for so many weeks at sea and work, and then you got fed, and then you got whatever your two rations of rum. And there's some famous story, I don't know if they're mythology, but of the sailing ships starting off with so much food and so much hardtack and so much alcohol and so many barrels of water returning with everything being consumed except the water. So, <laughs> <laughs> Oh, yes, the good old days. So rather than focus on where you are right now at GW University, I am guessing, Michelle, that our listeners would prefer that we focus our time together on your last gig where you spent over three decades of your life in the U.S. Navy. And before I ask you what you did as an admiral and to ask you to take us inside a typical week, I would love to know what it was like for you to become the first of so many firsts, the first African-American woman to be appointed an admiral and the first woman to reach the rank of three-star and then four-star in the armed forces. Does it get old hearing people introduce you that way? It's historically accurate. It's a reminder I've lived a long time. (laughs) (laughs) You and me both. Yeah. So um, I will say from the time I made one star, probably what was surprising and Something I had to manage was the additional attention and probably the additional demand from being the first. And then as the first accumulated, more additional attention and more demand for things outside of what would be my normal work day. Do you just wish the people would introduce you as Admiral Howard and then move on? Oh, well, there's a lot of times. I mean, I still speak. I'll ask them to keep the intro short. 30 seconds is good. <laughs> I, don't, I didn't get that memo. <laughs> oh, okay. So when you started your military service in the Navy, did you even aspire to becoming a three-star or four-star, let alone an admiral? Or did that more evolve over time? Well, no, I don't know that anyone can honestly say they aspire to be a three or four-star. And then, of course, when I started... So I started in Annapolis in 1978. I think there was one woman, one star, Brad McKee, and then there was the head of the nurse corps. It was while I was on active duty and about the time I think I was a lieutenant, the Navy had its first woman two star who was in what was called the general unrestricted line. She led shore commands, but had not served at sea. And then we had our first woman three star who was from the same community, led shore, had came in before women could serve at sea. So this idea of saying I'm going after something that had not even existed is it's temporarily sort of misplaced based on where we were historically at the time. Well, speaking of where we were historically, you shared 
in our espresso shots interview, which we just completed, and our listeners should check out show notes to see if that episode has already dropped. But you shared that when you were 12 years old, you saw a documentary, and that inspired you to want to attend a service academy like the U.S. Naval Academy. And yet, at that time, and this was, I guess, the early 70s, it was actually against the law for a woman to attend a service academy. And ironically, your mother said to you, well, let's see if by the time you're old enough to even apply, you're still interested in it. And if it's still illegal, maybe we could sue them. And even though that might take a period of years, and by that sue them, sue the U.S. government, maybe you could be blazing the trail for other women to attend a service academy. Little did she know her daughter would break the glass ceiling on the three and four stars and then becoming an admiral. So I was pretty fortunate. I had wise parents. When I think about it in retrospect, I had parents who did not talk to us like we were children. Years later, when I would talk to my mother, she said, well, that's been my experience. Some people raise children and some people raise adults. Isn't that interesting? And then a few years, four years after you and your mom had that conversation, President Ford made it legal for women to attend a service academy. And then you entered in 1978. You entered Annapolis, the U.S. Naval Academy. Why did you want to go into the Navy? When the law changed and then it was possible for me to apply, I think I was 16, I knew that Whatever service academy, if I could get in, that you went into the military afterwards. If you go to West Point, you go to the Army, you go to the Air Force Academy, you go to the Air Force, and out of the Naval Academy, you could go Navy or Marine Corps. So I went to the library and started to do research on what women could do in the services. And it seemed to me, if I went to West Point, whatever I could do, I could do in the Marine Corps. Whatever women could do in the Air Force, fly. The women could do the same thing in the Navy. So I just thought the Naval Academy had more options for me when I was going to graduate. Did you love the sea? When I was applying and while I was a midshipman, women were not allowed to serve on ships at that point. Okay. So you were thinking that you were going to be on land. I was thinking I might be serving in a communications area, depending on what I wanted to do. Women served as helicopter pilots, cargo aircraft pilots. So there were still plenty of exciting things to do. I knew I wouldn't probably understand what was available or what would really interest me until once I started. It was while I was at Annapolis that the Navy designated certain ships support ships. So while I was at Annapolis, they opened up support ships to women. So then I think my third class year, I got some time on a ship at sea. I said, yeah, that's what I want to do. And so when I graduated, I went straight into sea duty. I was on auxiliary ships. My first ship was a tender. It repaired submarines. My second ship was a training carrier, so it didn't deploy. And then while I was a lieutenant, the policy changed again, and they opened up all the logistics ships, ammunition resupply, food resupply. And so I transitioned to an ammunition ship as a mid-grade officer and then deployed. And my first deployment was Desert Storm. Mm. In one article I read about you, Michelle, it said that early in your career, there was a group of female officers on an aircraft carrier 
who asked you to confront a new captain because they said he was acting in a chauvinistic way towards them. This article says, understandably, you were worried because calling out one of your superiors for sexism, and this was back in the 1980s, a time when women were just beginning to move up the military ranks, could have been career suicide. But you did it anyway. You confronted him. Why? I don't know if I would use the word confront. Okay. (laughs) I was a lieutenant. I made an appointment and went. So one of the challenges I had when the women came to me, my peers... I had not observed any of this activity. I was in engineering. In some session they had amongst themselves, they voted that I should be the one to talk to the captain. So I gathered up their perspectives, their observations. I made an appointment, went in and sat down with the captain and said, hey, there's basically it's most of your women officers have concerns. And then sort of laid out for him their observations and their perspective. So there was a lot I learned in that session because he let just let me talk. He listened. And so I learned that leaders listen. You're not afraid of words or what someone's saying to you. Feedback's always a gift. You might not agree with it, but you'll take the time to listen and hear hear that person out. And he did. But you're right. I, I had a lot of, you know, when they first came to me, because I'm like, I haven't seen anything. It's carriage big. And I was physically working below decks. But then I realized if I couldn't get the gumption up to talk to a senior person about a challenge, then I probably was in the wrong career. Because if you can't conquer your fear over something like that, how are you ever going to conquer your fear if you have to go into combat someday? So, Admiral, what advice do you have for young women listening today who may be persons of color or who may be gay, trans, or queer, how can they best navigate their careers, especially in the early years in the Navy? And does the story about Ginger Rogers hold true in that to succeed in her world, she had to dance as well as her male counterpart, her male partner, Fred Astaire, only backwards and in heels? So let me start with the second part. The services are pretty good about occupational standards. And whatever those standards are, they're not requiring anybody to do anything extra because they happen to be a woman. That if you meet the psychological test, the intellectual capacity to be a nuclear-powered engineer, the Navy's gender neutral. You meet the standards. If you want to be a diver, you got to be able to run faster, do a lot of pull-ups, And we don't care if you're male or female. There's a standard for being a diver and you have to meet that standard. It's not you have to do one-armed pull-ups because you're women. You have to be able to do a certain amount of pull-ups in a certain amount of time. Gotcha. So what about the first half? How can young women best navigate their careers in the early years? So I think people owe themselves an awareness of the environment they're going into Department of Labor is a wonderful organization in terms of there's a women's bureau, but they have decades of data and occupational data. And every few years can tell you the percentage of women that are in any given career broken down, whether it's computer science or engineering or construction or military service. 
And surprisingly, there are a number of career fields that are far more non-traditional in terms of the representation of women than being in the military. And I think if you're going to go after what's a non-traditional role for women and Department of Labor kind of uses 25% as their marker, if there's less than 25% female representation in an occupational career path, they still describe that work as non-traditional. Then I think you need to be aware of that. Because life's going to be a little bit different. You're going to be a pioneer if you stay in that community. And as you continue to grow up and grow from manager to leader, you have to understand the environment that you're moving into. If you had to sum up what the qualities were that you have that helped you to rise in the ranks of the U.S. Navy, what would they be? I've often been told I'm a hard worker. I've often been told in terms of being a leadership, I'm firm but fair. I believe I'm objective about myself as best as any human can be. And I believe I'm a good listener. Well, I have no doubt that there is no such thing as a typical day when you're a four-star admiral. But could you take us inside maybe as close as it comes to a typical week for you? What were all of the different responsibilities you had to juggle where you were tapping into those qualities? At the four-star level, particularly in an operational theater, I would say listening. You're getting daily briefs. You have all these mission sets going on and you have all these different commanding officers, leaders in their own right below you who are in charge of the mission and driving the mission. And then you have to cultivate relationships so that they feel confident to be able to communicate to you where they need help, if they need help, or where there's risky areas, but they've got it under control. And then you have got to really listen as you're getting your operational briefs and ask the right questions and pull the thread at the right moment. And so I would say listening becomes far more important as your span of control gets bigger. How did you learn if you learned or if this was just something that you did naturally, how to ask the right question at the right time? I would say one of the things that helped reshape how I think about things was getting my master's degree and learning how to put issues into frameworks and learning how to try and put issues into blocks and then making sure I understood the components of those blocks. And then I think I'm strong in that if something does not make sense or I just really don't understand, I'm not afraid to go, hey, can you walk me through this in a little bit more detail? Or I really don't understand what you're saying. So can you try and rephrase it? And then a lot of times I found where people, when you're observing people communicating to you, Where they're uncomfortable, it's because they don't have clarity of understanding about that particular area. And so it's one, you've got to have enough confidence in yourself to say, sometimes I just don't know or I'm just not getting it. And behave that, oh my gosh, no, no, four-star admiral should never say those words. No, there's just times you cannot possibly know as much as 40 people in front of you. You have experience that's that can help shape your absorption of the information. You have experience sets that help you relate to what they're saying, but there's times you are going to just know it's not making sense and you've got to ask questions to get to clarity. So for our listeners, Admiral Howard got her master's in military arts and science 
I think I'm saying that right. Yes. In history, yep. in history at the yes. U.S. Army Command and General Staff College, just to help you put that into context. So you spent an awful lot of time listening. What were the kinds of briefs that you were getting? So in an operational command, you normally start the day with a brief that walks through all the different mission sets that are going on, what all the activities are. And in a large command, of course, that could take an hour to hour and a half. And then you might have a smaller update on the priority ones towards the end of the day. If you're in the middle of a mission that requires your personal interaction, then you're going to be running a cycle that's more of a 24-hour cycle where you're getting updates maybe every four to six hours, or you might be getting a personal update directly from one of your operational commanders. So depending on the number of missions and then high priority of strategic missions, your day gets changed. So in a routine week, it's about twice a day, normally runs face-to-face or BTC five to six days a week. And you might do just written email reports on the seventh day, or if a lot's going on, it's seven days a week. It's every day. Oh my goodness. So your last command was from 2016 to 2017, where you were the commander of U.S. Naval Forces Europe and Africa. And at the same time, you simultaneously led NATO's Allied Joint Force Command, Naples, which had oversight of missions from the Western Balkans to Iraq. Off the top of your head, do you remember how many direct reports you had? Direct are the staff members who work directly for me, the first layer down, and then commanding officers. So that's one layer down. That's maybe between the two staffs, 40 people. Oh, my God. No, that's just that's just the committee. Yeah. So if you're talking about the totality of the staffs, so the U.S. staff was about 1,200 people. The NATO staff was about 850. If you're talking about the span of control and all of the ships, submarines, carriers, and remember, some assets move in and out of theater. On a big day, you have people on mission in cross Africa, Djibouti, NATO side. You've got people in the African Union. You could be talking 50,000 people. And those could be units operating high north, up near the Arctic Circle, units operating off West Africa, a base in Djibouti, peacekeeping operations in Kosovo the training mission in Ethiopia, and then support or training missions, half a dozen African countries, sometimes more, depending on what we were asked to provide support to, half a dozen ships in the Mediterranean, one or two carriers, amphibious forces, and you're, you're running mission. So when I first got to Naval Forces Europe, the carrier was in the Eastern Med and it was putting strikes into Syria against ISIS. And then at the same time, we ended up starting a mission that ran for six months where we had amphibious forces providing direct support to Mizraan forces in Libya. And they were using helicopters, fixed wing. They were running strike missions based off Mizraan forces because the Libyan government was fighting ISIS and they requested U.S. forces support. President agreed. We got the mission. So during that time, What would you say were the various responsibilities that you, as the four-star admiral, had to juggle? 
you're in command. So you're juggling all of the aspects that go with being in command, mission, risk assessment, synchronization of forces. This isn't like commanding a ship where it's parsable in terms of true management and task and activities. It's oversight. Gotcha. See, for those of us civilians who <laughs> never been in the military, I think it's really interesting to hear the distinctions and to appreciate the magnitude of what you were dealing with on any given day. There's an engagement component to this. So, for example, if you have a carrier that's running patrols, doing strike missions into another country, then, for example, there's, depending on what countries they fly over, there's clearance, air clearance requirements and support, permission from those countries. So the job might require that you're going to be the one engaging because you're the senior leader with the leadership of that country, could be military, could be political. And make sure they understand how much you appreciate their support for air clearance. Or you could be responsible for working through U.S. makes agreement with a NATO partner, want to create a base or create a runway. You're going to be assigned the responsibilities to put a team together and help work through the language of that memorandum of agreement or subset amendment to a treaty. And then you'll be the signatory for the U.S. government on that treaty. So it's, it's all of it. It's the totality of the area, the engagement, synchronization of forces, the planning, and then the risk assessment, and then the communication to the senior military leaders and political leaders, both on the NATO side and on the U.S. side. So did you sleep? From the time you go to sea, whether you're division officer department head, you don't get a lot of sleep. I mean, I think if there's nothing going on, on a ship, I would say the average person's probably putting in, and you're at sea, they're probably on watch or at work 80 to 90 hours. And then the rest of the time is sleeping or eating 10 minutes, putting some food in your mouth before you go back on watch. So as you get more senior, because your scope of theater is so large, the demands and communications tend to run around the clock. So you get periods where you can sleep, but it's not like a civilian job where it's nine to five. And it's not like a tough job where it's five to nine. You're in command 24 hours a day. And so, you know, sometimes your sleep might be flying on a commercial aircraft to get to another country. That might be your four hours of downtime to sleep where you hop off and go off and meet troops or sailors or Marines who are doing a mission. Wow. I feel like such a slacker. I got to tell you. <laughs> so, so let's flash back to when you were in college. You went to the U.S. Naval Academy and got a Bachelor's of Science and majored in mathematics. Did you know by the time you graduated where you were going to be? For Annapolis, service selection night goes in the spring of your senior year. And then um, the Navy shows what all the different positions are that are available to ensigns. And then they go by class rank. First person goes up, picks what they want to do, and then it works its way down from there. Okay. Well, I have two final time for coffee questions for you. If you could share a time in your professional life when you struggled, and by that, it could be anything. It could be just getting by on no sleep, or it could have been dropping a ball on something or maybe even failing at something. In my own experience, and now having interviewed hundreds of professionals in dozens of different careers on Time for Coffee, I've come to see, Michelle, that failure 
is often a blessing in disguise, helping us find or maybe even better identify our purpose in life. Is there a story you could share with our audience? Failure is interesting, particularly with the tech world. They've started to run around talking about fail fast, fail often. And I just caution folks that the military is a different environment. These are true human beings, sons and daughters who are responsible. You're responsible for them. And when you screw up a mission, people can die. And so this sort of, it's okay to fail and you learn from it. Leaders in the military have an obligation to plan and manage mission and make good risk assessments because failure consequences is devastating. You have human loss if you get it wrong. Now, if you want to talk about individual issues, I'm trying to qualify as an engineer on the training carrier. I bombed <laughs> the interview and, you know, and I had prepared as best as I could for it, but I still just did terrible. Well, golly, you just pick yourself back up and figure out where you went wrong and reapply yourself and make sure you do better the next time. I think amongst many of the qualities that you've exhibited over the course of your career, and no doubt the men and women in uniform have to exhibit every day, is tremendous grit. Oh, yeah. This is a different lifestyle than that of being a librarian. Final question. If you could go back to college, back to the Naval Academy, and do it all over again, but based on the wisdom you have now, what advice would you give yourself, Michelle? Well, I think in the end, my taking my mother's advice and just going after what I believe is right, I think that proved to be good advice. And it was good that I took my mom's good advice. Fair enough. You have also burst my bubble that those in the Navy do not always swear like sailors. Oh, <laughs> Well, there you go. Well, Michelle Admiral Howard, thank you so much for making Time for Coffee today with me and the Time for Coffee community. For our listeners, if you want to learn how to break into the U.S. Navy and some of Admiral Howard's wonderful career advice, which P.S. came from her mom, Check out show notes to see if her Espresso Shots episode has already dropped. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to Time for Coffee, where the professionals in the jobs that most interest you always have time to grab coffee 24-7, no matter where you live. I have one quick favor to ask you. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to Time for Coffee. Thanks so much.